just walking through hospital doors, we immediately become afraid. What do you go to hospitals for? Usually illness and injury. So as a birthing woman walking through those hospital doors, immediately your body instinctively is going to become more fear-based. A few of the women realize they come from really enmeshed families. So they haven't learned boundaries with their own families and they're struggling to create them with their in-laws now. I'm wondering if the artificial rupture of my membranes made labor more painful. That is a notoriously painful procedure. Some women vomit right afterwards. It's so uncomfortable. It has virtually no benefits and it's loaded with risk. This never had to happen to this woman. She was called high risk because she was at 42 plus two. That's, t- that's ridiculous. And as often as you can, but you don't have to be like naked at all costs. Yeah. You don't have right? to be naked at all costs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. It is May. It's our May Q&A. Yes, it is May and it's our May Q&A. And as always, we have excellent questions. You guys, our community sends in the best questions. The best the best. best, the best. We have the best people. We really do. Don't we? <laughs> if you don't know who I'm doing right now, I just, I don't even, I don't, I can't even help you. You don't no. know who I'm doing. No. Okay. You know what? I'm not even telling you. Is it a TV I- person? Cause I don't oh, watch. Is TV. it a TV person? I mean, <laughs> audience, are you listening to me? Please, please flood Trisha on Instagram with who I just did. <laughs> Do it again. Stick. No, I'm not doing do it, again. it again. I didn't no. even hear it. No, you heard it. You had no idea who I was doing. No, it was so obvious. No. Really? Yes. I thought it was you. No, that's not me. <laughs> okay. Somebody's uh, got to tell me. <laughs> Shall we? Okay. Hello, ladies. I'm hooked on your podcast. Can you please provide references for me when speaking to my doctor, if I need to, about topics like, quote, the aging placenta, failure to progress, not being a valid reason for C-section, eating during labor, breach deliveries, etc. I really have minimal hospital options, so I'd like to be fully educated and equipped to deal with any questions that come from medical staff. The podcast. What do you mean the podcast? Our podcast. We cover all of these things. You want to tell the doctor and medical staff to listen to our podcast? Tell your doctor to listen to Down Down to Birth and get it together. We do have medical professionals listening to us, but not the category that this woman is indicating her doctor and her hospital staff are, right? Because- she doesn't seem to think she's got a provider who's on the same page. That's evident, right? Or she wouldn't have asked the question. Agree? Yes. Okay. So basically I'm getting the impression from her. She feels that the onus is on her to convince her doctor of the birth she wants to have, that it's her responsibility to, to sell what she wants to have for her birth or the decision she's going to make or the intervention she's going to decline that she has to convince her doctor of these things. And she doesn't. That's right. The difference here is that you actually don't need to provide your doctor with resources. Your doctor needs to provide those resources to you. Yeah. Your difficult job is making your own decisions and getting full information. That's a hard enough job. But once you've made up your own mind about what is right for you, you don't have to convince anyone else of that. 
you need them to support you. And if you don't have their support, you know, that's obviously a red flag and you do need to go to greater lengths to find a provider who supports you, who respects you as the parent of this child. Um, but you don't, and you should never have to convince them of anything. And you should be able to get the evidence from them. You should be able to say, is there a risk? Is there any true risk to an aging placenta? Is there any true risk to eating during labor? And if you're having a hard time getting them to answer these questions, we can always go back to breaking it down in the form of the BRAIN acronym, which is so helpful. Like you can ask the question, what are the benefits of eating during labor? What are the risks? What are my alternatives? The I stands for intuition and the N stands for what happens if I do nothing? And you can literally go through all those segments of the acronym and ask those questions of your doctor and see how they respond to it. And make sure they're not responding in rhetoric. That is a skill that you need to cultivate. You have to be able to hear rhetoric. If you hear rhetoric, just let it go in one ear and out the other, because what you're looking for is actual information and not someone who's trying to sway you into one particular way of thinking. Okay. This question is on erythromycin eye ointment. Hey, awesome ladies. I am 26 weeks pregnant and have been binging your podcast. I've learned so much in capitals already. It has already helped develop an outline on my birth plan. And I am so grateful. I recently heard your episode on erythromycin. We didn't like we have an episode. episode on erythromycin. <laughs> it must've been a Q and a question. <laughs> I think so. A segment. We a did. Segment. Yes. I started looking into the research on whether it helps prevent other bacterial infections. The research, the research overall seems unclear on whether it can prevent pink eye from other bacteria aside from the STDs. I'm negative for STDs, so I figured the eye ointment was a no-brainer. But I do get UTIs and have had a yeast infection during this pregnancy, so I'm wondering if the erythromycin might help prevent my baby from getting pink eye from any other bacteria that I might have during this pregnancy. UTIs are urinary tract infections and STDs are sexually transmitted diseases. Technically STIs, <laughs> sexually transmitted infections. So erythromycin is given to prevent serious injury to the eye and blindness in babies from infection. Most often, um, seriously with gonorrhea, you also can have chlamydia eye infection, but it's a little bit less dangerous to the baby, but the gonorrhea infection is very serious and can cause blindness. And it's very easily treated with erythromycin eye ointment. And that's why it's given, but other bacteria that's on your skin that may be in your vagina can also cause irritation in the eye and cause a little bit of pink eye or conjunctivitis, but it's not harmful. And erythromycin isn't actually proven to improve the infection rate from other bacteria. So I would say you do not need to worry about it. If you have no gonorrhea and no chlamydia at the time of vaginal birth, you do not need eye ointment for your baby. Simple. Just what's the concern about pink eye? Is that a legit, is that like a big concern? It sounds so arbitrary. I don't think it's, no, I don't think it's a big concern. And breast milk is a great treatment. If your baby has any type of conjunctivitis, which can be from a clogged tear duct, or, you know, if they do get a little irritation in the eye from something they've come in contact with. Squirt the breast milk in the eye. That's right. Which People is do. shocking to anyone who hasn't had a baby yet and heard that before. They're like shocked. Just little drops. You don't have to squirt it. <laughs> Just sort of <laughs> drop gently into your baby's eye. The risk of using the eye ointment, I guess we should touch on that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Squirt it in. 
Yeah, we don't need to like <laughs> that's just spray the eyes. That's just yeah, little bit, little drops, little drops, gentle drops. <laughs> and that's good for that's good for many um, many irritations and infections that come up in newborns. You can do it on the skin. You can do it in the eyes. You on can a paper cut. Do it on a paper cut on your husband's paper cuts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on your husband's paper cuts, diaper rash, um, umbilical, the umbilical cord healing. I read an article in Mothering Magazine years ago that was all about the various things that breast milk could heal. And it was, it was amazing. It was like eight or nine things. And the reason is that if you look at breast milk under a microscope, it is alive, like produce is, like fruits and vegetables. It has living white blood cells, which is exactly what does heal us. So as mystical as it sounds, that's precisely what does heal us. That, so this is what I always tell women when they pump their breast milk and why it's actually safe to leave it out at room temperature for far more than Google tells you, many more hours than the CDC tells you because it's a live food. It's constantly cleansing itself. That's why we call it magic. It's magical. It's alive. It's not like your cow's milk. It's not like your formula. It's kind of like kombucha. I went from understanding you to not understanding you. Like <laughs> right. Kombucha lasts forever. On right? the top, it never goes bad. Oh, okay. Um, That's the thing. You know, I don't, you know, I don't drink anything carbonated. So it went right over my head. Mm, all right. But I, I just want to, I need to go back and finish what I was saying about um, erythromycin. The danger in using erythromycin is actually very little. There's very little risk to using it in terms of side effects of the medication, except that it does interfere with your baby's vision there. When they put that eye ointment in your baby can't actually see there, it's very blurry and babies don't have super, super good vision when they're born anyway. But, you know, you just have this beautiful, perfect baby come out of your body and then to kind of mask their eyes with this globby ointment and they have a hard time opening and hard time focusing. It's just not necessary unless you are at risk. Oh, by the way, Trisha, quick question about erythromycin. It is an antibiotic, which is obviously a turnoff because you don't want to give that to anyone who doesn't have a bacterial infection. Are you saying it's so minimal and it's practically, I mean, it's not topical. But it is, it is topical. Well, it sort of is. The eye is an, is an open orifice and it goes right on the eyeball. But you're saying it's basically topical. Very little gets into the bloodstream. That's why you're saying it's so much safer than a traditional antibiotic that are oh, yes. administered by other measures. Fine. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So no one has to make a painstaking decision over this either way. No. Okay. That's right. All right. Next question is on the same topic of breastfeeding. And it says, quick question for Tricia. Are there ways to prevent mastitis? Definitely. Absolutely. Um, mastitis results from two things, milk stasis and an inflammatory response that is set off in the breast when the milk is sits in the breast for too long and the milk ducts get overly full and you get engorged or you get a plug duct. The second way you get mastitis is infectious. And that can happen through an ascending infection through your nipple. If you have a break in the nipple skin from a bad latch, it can also happen when milk just sits in the breast for too long and the milk gets sticky and it gets thick and it starts to breed bacteria. Um, and if your body isn't able to kind of keep that in check or the milk sits there for too long, you can get mastitis. So the ways that you can prevent it are to have a good latch and to frequently feed your breastfeeding baby and don't let milk sit in your breast for too long. So that 
10 to 14 times, I'm always saying it's not eight times. Eight times is the bottom of the barrel minimum amount of times that your baby needs to feed to gain weight effectively, to stimulate your milk production effectively, to keep milk flowing. It's really more on average 10 to 12, even up to 14 times a day is what we need babies doing in the early weeks. All right. Sounds good. Next one is on birth control. So you can also answer this one. Hi there. I just started listening to the podcast as part of my research for my upcoming pregnancy and birth, and I'm finding it super helpful. Thanks for all the work you do and your advocacy. My question is about postpartum IUD insertion. I'm reading conflicting things about how soon after birth you can slash should have a non-hormonal IUD inserted to decrease the risk of expulsion, uterine perforation, or other negative outcomes. Sources seem all over the place on this. My IUD insertion was the most traumatic medical experience of my life, but I love it as birth control and would like to go back to having it after a baby. What are your thoughts? Can you explain what expulsion is, Trisha? Sure. Well, first, I just want to say that the non-hormonal IUD is an amazing form of birth control. And it's my number one go-to for anybody who is thinking about some method of birth control other than cycle monitoring, um, fertility awareness method. So the non-hormonal, excellent choice. Um, So when you have an IUD inserted, it goes up through your cervix and it's meant to sit at the very top of your uterus. It can just come out on its own? It can, it shouldn't, but it can come out for a couple of reasons. It can come out because you put it in too soon after giving birth. Some women will get an IUD before they leave the hospital. Oh my gosh. That is a, you know, that puts you at risk for expulsion because you're still bleeding and there's a lot of flow coming out of your uterus and that IUD can come out with the flow and your uterus isn't really back to its pre-pregnant size. Obviously you just give birth. It can also get expelled, expulsed the right pronunciation of that word expulsed. If I thought the word was expelled, spelled it, I thought was the verb. I think that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So it can also be expelled from your uterus. If it's not inserted properly, if it's too shallowly inserted, like it's just inside the cervix and it's not up in the fundus or the top of the uterus. So your best bet to have it stay in your uterus is to put it in later, like past your, at your six week, beyond your six week, maybe even, you know, three months postpartum. Most women are not ready to return to sexual intercourse at six weeks anyway. So really do we need to have an IUD that soon? But if you are finding that you are having sex sooner and you're not exclusively breastfeeding, then you are at risk of getting pregnant. Then you might get it sooner. It shouldn't be a traumatic experience getting an IUD inserted. It can be uncomfortable, but it certainly shouldn't be traumatic. All right. Next one says, hi, ladies. I wonder if you could give me your view. I wonder if you could give me your view on a question that's been bothering me since my birth three weeks ago. I'm wondering if the artificial rupture of my membranes made labor more painful. Basically, I was planning a home birth, but was precluded at the 11th hour as I went over 42 weeks and my midwife's insurance didn't cover that. So I ended up going into spontaneous labor at home at 42 plus two. But once I got into the hospital, the intervention started. I was treated as high risk because of gestational age, and this had a huge effect on me mentally and emotionally. They started talking about artificial rupture of the membranes pretty quickly. And once that happened, I felt out of control with the pain. I had so desperately wanted to to avoid an epidural, but I did take one as I couldn't handle it. I have been filled with guilt ever since. I suppose if artificial rupture of membranes made labor more painful, then I would be blaming myself less as I have felt I had no choice. 
I would love to birth at home in the future, but my confidence is really shaken now that maybe I just have a lower pain threshold than I thought, and I'm not cut out for it. Yes. That is a notoriously painful procedure. Some women vomit right afterwards. It's so uncomfortable. It has virtually no benefits and it's loaded with risk. This never had to happen to this woman. Look at this. I mean, she was called high risk because she was at 42 plus two. That's, t- that's ridiculous. So they, they treated her poorly and here she is left to feel guilty about it. This has nothing to do with your pain tolerance, but also I want to debunk that myth. We've all been raised to believe in this idea of pain tolerance and who has a higher pain tolerance than anyone else. But what is believed now is we all just respond very differently to pain. I mean, you can stub your toe and your husband or your partner can stub their toe and you might react totally differently to it or a paper cut. It's not that it feels, it's not that it feels so different necessarily. It's how you react. And that is one, like, I'm not saying this just because I teach hypnobirthing, but this is one of the things that attracts second time moms to hypnobirthing because they want to learn to feel calm during the sensation that they are experiencing. So you don't want to have notions about yourself like, can I not handle the pain? First of all, you went through something that nature never intended you to go through. That's what you were experiencing. So don't, don't feel that that was labor that you were experiencing. It was the procedure you were experiencing, but you can learn the techniques. And if you've practiced enough yoga in your life, you've also learned, you get less reactive. You learn not to make a face in yoga poses. You learn not to strain. These are learned behaviors. Even if you do feel something very intense in your labor, if you have a home birth, you can respond calmly to it. That's where we really want to put our focus, not on what we're feeling, but how we're going to respond to it. And that's all we can do because we don't know what we'll feel. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, 
easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. And our experience of pain is greatly influenced by our birthing environment. So one experience of pain related to breaking your bag of water in a home birth could feel really different than the experience breaking your bag of water in a hospital, because in the hospital environment, you are, it's uncomfortable already. So everything is going to be a little bit heightened. We should just mention that that bag of water is there to ease the contraction. It's there to provide cushion. And when you break the bag of water and you lose all that cushion, yes, the contractions are going to feel different and most likely a lot more intense, harder to manage. In our episode with Yvonne Strahovski, episode 159, Yvonne Strahovski from Handmaid's Tale, she talked about going to the hospital and freezing up right when she got there. And she really trusted her OB, but still just the number of strangers that were around her in an unfamiliar setting, she felt her body clam up, she said. Just walking through hospital doors, we immediately become afraid. What do you go to hospitals for? Usually illness and injury, right? Things that are scary, things that don't feel good. So as a birthing woman walking through those hospital doors, immediately your body instinctively is going to become more fear-based. All right. We have another one here about breastfeeding and it says, I have a four-week-old baby and I'm breastfeeding on demand. We don't have a routine and the gap between feeds is random. Sometimes it's one hour. Sometimes it's up to three hours. When can I expect some sort of routine? Well, welcome to exclusive breastfeeding. (laughs) Where your Um, life revolves around your baby. Yes. Where the gap between feeds is totally random and ranges from 30 minutes to three to four hours, maybe if you're lucky overnight. And when can you expect some sort of routine? I mean, honestly, you know, maybe, maybe around eight to 12 weeks, maybe never. Eight to 12 weeks. I thought you'd say eight to 12 months. I felt like I just was breastfeeding on demand forever. Well, you're still breastfeeding on demand at eight to 12 weeks for sure. But I do, some babies will fall into a little bit more of a pattern. That's true. Like they may start taking a four hour stretch of sleep consistently. Totally. They may. They wake up and breastfeed, then they play, then they breastfeed and take a nap. You're right. There is some sort of predictability. So it is, but it is still on demand. It is still on cue all the way through till till you're done, really. To me, routine is different than schedule. So when can you expect a schedule? Never. 
When can you expect a routine, a little bit of predictability, a little bit of pattern? Eight to 12 weeks, sometimes they'll fall into that. If breastfeeding is going well, if all things are where they need to be, baby's gaining weight well, milk supply is you know meeting baby's demands, then it can happen in, in that time frame. Any other thoughts? I was just remembering when you taught the breastfeeding workshop over the weekend, how after all these years of, of hosting that workshop, I was so surprised to learn that throughout that, let's say first year of breastfeeding, when you were saying, we really don't start producing more and more, and they are eating so much more in that course of the year, they're growing so much, but your milk gets so much different in constitution. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it's so true. And your breasts get actually smaller over the course of the year. Like you start off very engorged. It all regulates, it all goes down. And somehow in my mind, I just, if you had asked me if I were answering a multiple choice question that would have gotten it wrong, like I would have thought, yeah, you're producing much more to keep up with the baby's needs, but the baby's needs is met not by the quantity of milk, but the quality of the milk that just more was, so yes. Right. It might increase a little, right. But you know, it's, but it's not, if, that it's if going you up a, eightfold because they're eating eight times more than they did in the first week. I couldn't believe that. Exactly. Yes. And that scares moms a lot because they'll see babies who are having an eight ounce bottle of formula at six months of age. And they're like, I'm only making two ounces right, right. now. Like, how am I ever going to make eight ounces? And I remind them that they never have to. And that is a beautiful thing. And also you can feel like your breast at some point weeks down the road into breastfeeding, many weeks down the road, your breast can feel totally empty. Like, you know how you can sense that fullness when they're full and then they're soft after a feed, but they can be totally empty and you can put your baby on and you can make milk on the spot throughout the feed. You're just making milk in the moment and they get a full feeding. Yep. So it really changes. Um, and it never becomes entirely scheduled. Although some moms try and some are successful, but most are not their behavior at the breast and their weight are the most important variables, not even diapers. At some point, they're not that they're not that useful as the weeks go on. They're still semi-important, but they, it changes. But really, it's your baby's weight gain and your baby's behavior at the breast. What do you mean their behavior? Just give one example of what you mean by that. So if you have a baby who is fussing every time they feed, cranky, you know, kind of refusing the breast or fussy at the breast, then we probably have a, a, a supply problem. Hmm. It could be too much. It could be too little. Like they're frustrated. In a they're sense. frustrated. Hmm. Yeah. They're not coming off the breast calm. Hmm. They even sometimes they literally will refuse the breast. Hmm. They will not go on the breast. All right. I think it's time for quickies. Quickies. Next. My friend's prolactin level is high and it is preventing her from getting pregnant. Any advice? <laughs> That's one of the purposes of high prolactin when you're breastfeeding is to prevent pregnancy. And it's the beautiful result of exclusive breastfeeding is that it does suppress ovulation. And that's nature's way of protecting you from getting pregnant too soon after giving birth, because it's not ideal for our physiology. So she is probably breastfeeding and she will likely have to decrease the amount of breastfeeding to get her prolactin level down. And then her body will ovulate. Do we have prolactin when we're not breastfeeding? Yes, but not in high levels. Well, what if this friend is not breastfeeding? And has never had a baby and has high levels because that's then she she needs a medical evaluation for why she has pro, high prolactin because then there's some underlying medical reason for it and it's not healthy. So next one, how important is three days of skin to skin like with no clothes for mom or baby? Is it totally necessary? Well, 
I don't, I don't know. In this question, it sounds like three days of skin to skin with no clothes and for mom or baby is like a thing. It's rigid. Like I've never trend. heard that. Right. Three days, 72 hours. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know where that's coming from. We either. talk a lot about skin to skin post-birth and being skin to skin as much as possible in those first two weeks, but there's no such thing as three days of around the clock, 72 hours of no clothes for mom or baby. You do not have to do that. The more your baby is skin to skin with you in a way that feels appropriate and good to you, the better. We had a mom on Instagram respond to this because we posted this in a story yesterday. And one of them wrote and said, I'm a few months out and we're, we're skin to skin all the time. And I was like, yeah, that's how it's done. So if your baby does have to be separated from you, if your baby is born prematurely has to be in the NICU or anything like that, that you will bond later. And the best way to bond is skin to skin. And it doesn't have to be in the first three days. The and it doesn't have idea, to be around the clock. The that's idea is this. to do skin to skin as soon as that is a possibility for you. If that's a possibility from birth on, go for it. If it's not, then you begin it as soon as you can. And as often as you can, but you don't have to be like naked at all costs. Yeah. You don't have right? to be naked at all costs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just skin to skin. So like what we're talking about is, you know, a baby that's swaddled cannot be skin to skin with you other than their little cheek. A baby can be in a diaper. They can even be in a onesie on your chest and that can still be skin to skin contact. I mean, their hands are an important part of contact. And if they're swaddled, they can't even use those hands. So that's, that's the overarching message. I think I can still express milk a year after weaning. Is this normal? It is happened to me. Little bits, tiny amounts. So just ignore it and it'll stop. Tiny, tiny amounts. Yeah. Are there natural ways to deal with mastitis? Prevention. Right. Massaging the breast. Cabbage leaves? Sometimes. Cabbage leaves are good for engorgement. Mm. Not necess- you're not necessarily engorged when you have mastitis. If you have a good home birth midwife, do you also need a doula? Depends. <laughs> it really does depend completely. Depends on you. It, it depends, depends on, on you. Depends. Sometimes it depends on the midwife. You love having doulas there, right? But I know a home birth midwife who doesn't because she feels like she does all that work. But you like the feeling of that team and that doula to do that part while you're doing the other stuff, the, the waist up versus the waist down, right? Yes. I think it's great. I mean, it depends on the person. It's not like you can have a great home birth experience without a doula, but it depends on the mother. Yeah. Some, some home birth clients of mine ask if it's redundant. That's usually the word they use. And I say, no, it's not redundant because I don't think it's redundant. No, it's not redundant because the midwife is your medical professional and a doula is, you know, a supportive person in the room. So there's a world of difference in that respect. But I think the reason it's a question for some people is that a doula in a traditional hospital setting is sometimes worth their absolute body weight in gold in keeping that birth safer with lower intervention or let's say lower unnecessary intervention. And that's why they think, well, at a home birth, I'm not at risk of all that unnecessary intervention. So right. That part of the doula's advocacy role is not going to be as necessary at birth, but they're still there to provide all of their other emotional and physical techniques for support. Yep. And if, if it comes down to cost, you know, like you're paying out of pocket for a home birth midwife, you got to pay out of pocket for a doula. Yes. You, you know, if you need to not have one, you're going to not have the doula. It's up to the mother. Absolutely. Like everything else. Right. Let's be honest. Last question. How can I run away from my emails? (laughs) (laughs) You have good sneakers. (laughs) I mean, this comes up a lot. 
The people who raise the person you love. You have to be willing to set the boundary. If you haven't learned good boundaries before in your life, and you might not have because of your own family. We talked about this in my postpartum support group this week. We, We brought up the notion of how many close families are enmeshed. When anything is going on between two members of the family, every other member of the family knows about it and everyone's talking about it and everyone knows everyone else's opinion on it. And that is what we experience in close families and enmeshment is a problem. And then when we come from an enmeshed family and we marry someone who doesn't come from an enmeshed family, we realize they have very different boundaries and we have a little learning to do and they have a little learning to do. So this came up in our group because a few of the women realize they come from really enmeshed families. So they haven't learned boundaries with their own families and they're struggling to create them with their in-laws now. Practice slowly set small boundaries. And as you get good at that, you'll be able to set firmer boundaries. Yeah. That's it for this week. And we have some great, very exciting episodes on the roster coming up to be recorded in May and June. So I am so, so excited about one of them. (laughs) And we are not going to tell you what it is. I'm so excited. (laughs) Not today. A few of them, but one of them, I'm just like giddy. All right. Um, Thanks everyone for being here and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Good. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. This is what we're really like. (laughs) What Cynthia and Trisha are really like. You shall never know. Sounds like one of those cheesy uh, Cosmopolitan magazine covers. (laughs) What the down to birth women are really like. People love that stuff. As if they're like completely different. Yeah. Off the microphone. You just get the facade, friends. It's all a facade (laughs) here.